out of nowhere, uh, the students who came in around 2014 seem to be behaving as though words are dangerous, words are violence, books are dangerous, books should be uh, banned or prevented from being assigned, or speakers should be protested and not allowed to speak because, not because they're offensive and wrong, but because they are dangerous. If they were to speak, it would, it would be traumatizing. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at New York University. Originally focused on cultural psychology, he moved into political and moral psychology in recent decades. His three big books, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind, with Greg Lukianoff, explore big questions in modern psychology. Today we'll be focused on The Coddling, a book that Jonathan has been discussing recently on his visit to Australia. Jonathan, welcome to The Good Life Podcast. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. I had a great time in Australia a couple of weeks ago. Was it your first visit? It was. I'm 55 years old. I've only heard wonderful things about Australia from every American who's ever been, and I finally got to go myself. Fantastic. So let's start with the three untruths that you say at the, at the, are at the heart of, uh, of the coddling. Tell us about what those three untruths are. So my, my first book was called The Happiness Hypothesis. It was about 10 ancient ideas and uh, whether or not they're true. And it, it, it seems as though if, if students on some American college campuses had read that book and then decided to do exactly the opposite of ancient wisdom, uh, we would have basically what we have uh, on some of our college campuses. So the first great untruth that, uh, that Greg Lukianoff and I see operating on many campuses is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Uh, the second is always trust your feelings. And the third, is life is a battle between good people and evil people. And each of those contradicts ancient wisdom and basic psychology about how to get along with people and lead a happy, productive life. So if we can get um, undergraduate students, if we can get young people to believe all three, uh, I can't guarantee that they will fail in life, but they're not likely to be either very effective socially or very happy psychologically. So that seems a, a, a glum prognosis for us. How do you think Yes, those... I am very glum. <laughs> Despite the fact that on so many measures, uh, the current generation is, uh, is doing well, right? Uh, I mean, for example, if you look at... Oh, uh, what measures are those? Well, alcohol use, teen pregnancies, unprotected sex, smoking, car accidents. Uh, there's, there's many metrics on which uh, the, uh, the current generation seem to, seem to be flourishing. Uh, but you paint a, a much darker picture. So uh, tell us about your concerns about the, uh, the, the current so-called I generation or Generation Z uh, and, and how, that, uh, how, how that led into mm -hmm. writing the book. Yes. So um, the, the, the origin of the book was that my friend Greg, uh, who runs a free speech organization defending college students' a right to speak against administrators overreaching, uh, Greg began to notice all these strange things happening in 2014 
um, in which college students in the United States were asking for safe spaces, trigger warnings, microaggression training. Uh, the, out of nowhere, uh, the students who came in around 2014 seem to be behaving as though words are dangerous, words are violence, books are dangerous, books should be uh, banned or prevented from being assigned, or speakers should be protested and not allowed to speak because, not because they're offensive and wrong, but because they are dangerous. If they were to speak, it would, it would be traumatizing. And, and most of us were very puzzled by this. We couldn't really understand what was happening. And again, it came out of nowhere in 2014. Uh, the millennial generation, the students born between 1982 and 1995 or so, um, were uh, uh, similar to previous generations. They liked to tell jokes. They uh, could stand to hear things that uh, they, they found um, offensive or they could ignore speakers. But the students coming in in 2014-2015 uh, seemed much more fragile. Um, and now you say you say that they're doing much better. It's true that on all these measures of deviance, uh, Gen Z, Gen Z, or iGen, is much better. And so you might celebrate and say, wow, you know, they're not getting drunk and getting in car accidents. They're not having premature, you know, pregnancies. But it turns out it's because they're not doing much of anything. That is, if you look at uh, time use studies, if you look at uh, national, nationally representative surveys done in the United States, they show um, big declines in all sorts of things that we think are transitions to adulthood. So the percentage of 18-year-olds who got a driver's license, and you can get one at 16, and now a lot of students don't even get a driver's license, the percent who've ever tried alcohol, the percent who've ever gone on a date, um, what are they doing? They're spending so much time now, you know, six to eight hours a day uh, on their devices. They're connecting by social media, so they don't connect as much in person. Um, but you might just say, well, you know, this generation, they're online. It's just different. Maybe it's just different. And maybe it's even better. I'm totally willing to believe that being hyper-connected makes you hyper-social, makes you hyper-smart. I'm totally willing to believe that. But when you look at the mental health stats, when you look at what happened to the, the mental health of Gen Z, Gen Z, beginning around 2012, plus or minus a year or two, the rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide start rising uh, somewhat for boys and unevenly, and not on all measures, but they are going up for boys. But they're going up on all measures by a very large degree uh, for girls. And this is happening in the US, the UK, Canada. Um, when I got to Australia, before I went to Australia, I, I found the stats for Australia. You have it there too, although not as sharp as we do. And in New Zealand, although in New Zealand, they're about three or four years behind. I don't know if their kids didn't get on social media soon or what, but it's happening in all the English speaking countries. So I think this is a disaster. Um, I think this is the biggest, as far as I know, it's the biggest change in mental health that we've ever seen in a generation. What you document for uh, the depressive episodes is uh, is pretty striking. Uh, increase, uh, uh, particularly among uh, adolescent girls, from uh, what about twelve percent in two thousand and four through to tw almost twenty percent uh, in in the latest survey, uh, and also increases in self harm and in suicide, suggesting that we're not just picking up changes in willingness to report, but uh, th there's something pretty substantial going on in the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th that's right. It, and it was a very reasonable hypothesis a few years ago when, when these rates started going up. There were some people who said, oh, no, this is nothing to worry about. Gen Z is just so comfortable talking about mental health. This is a good thing. 
But I think it's pretty clear that that's wrong because the only things going up are depression and anxiety and the behavioral manifestations of them. So it's not as though they're suddenly talking about bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. No, it's not just that they're comfortable talking. It's that they really have higher rates. And because it's in the behavior too, it's in hospital admissions data. Many, many more girls are actually admitted to hospitals because they have cut themselves. And the rate for older teen girls in the US and UK is up something on the order of 50 to 70 or 80%. The rate for preteen girls, like 10, 11, 12 year old girls, which is very low to begin with, but that rate is up 189% in the United States. And one of the striking things about this, where I think we really need to emphasise, is you're just talking about a shift in the last five years. So normally when we're speaking to social psychologists or so social scientists of any, any sort, they're documenting trends that began 20 years ago because that's the stage where we feel as though we've got enough data to, uh, to, to attack the problem. But uh, from the point at which your Atlantic article came out to the point at which your book came out, uh, just in that three-year period, really a whole lot more uh, data seemed to emerge backing up your, mm -hmm. uh, your hypothesis. Well, that's right, because when, when Greg and I wrote up our article for The Atlantic magazine in, in 2014 and it came out in 2015, um, people were talking about the mental health crisis on campus and they were saying that the counseling centers were overwhelmed. We were hearing that. And so it was my job as the social scientist to find the data um, on a rise of dep in depression. I couldn't do it because uh, it takes a couple years between the time a kid is depressed and the time it shows up in a study that you can access. So I couldn't find the data. And so we had to basically just say, well, people are talking about this and we have one study showing a survey of mental health centers. That, that was all we could find in early 2015. It was only in 2017 that the numbers started coming out and, and the spike was dramatic. And we thought, well, maybe it's a fluke of one year, but no, it's, it's continued. And then once we found that it's the exact same in Britain, Canada, and then it's similar in Australia, New Zealand. Now we're pretty confident. This is a, if not global, it's at least in all the English-speaking countries. You, you talk about uh, a couple of big factors driving this, uh, social media and uh, changes in overprotective parenting. Uh, talk us through how you think those have affected uh, the upbringing of Gen Z. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so let's, start, let's, let's start at the beginning in terms of what is healthy childhood development? So, um, so if you go back to kids born in the 70s or 80s, at least in the United States, this was during a gigantic crime wave. It was really dangerous in our cities. We lived with the threat of nuclear war. That's what I grew up with. Um, but even still, kids went out and played. Uh, we let kids go out and play. And um, the norm, I've surveyed people all over the country, uh, between age six, seven, and eight is when American kids were given independence. That means we'd go out we'd play, we'd ride our bicycles, we'd get lost, we'd get in fights, but we had to figure out how to fend for ourselves. Now, human nature or, is anti-fragile. Kids are not fragile. Um, uh, we actually need challenges. We need to get in conflicts and resolve them. We need to get lost and find our way back. That's how we grow. It's just like the immune system. The immune system must be exposed to bacteria, dirt, germs, in order for it to develop. So even when things were dangerous, somewhat dangerous, um, kids went out to play and they developed normal social skills, normal strengths. Um, and so that's the way things always were. And even through the millennial generation, which got computers when they were little, uh, they got the internet pretty late um, in the millennial generation, but they, they got the internet, some of them. The internet is not the problem. Even iPhones aren't the problem. Um, the problem, I believe, is, is, uh, is, is um, social media specifically. So just to pick up this, just, I'm sorry, just to finish the developmental story. Mm. In the United States in the 1990s, 
um, just as our crime rate was plummeting and just as the threat of nuclear war vanished. So the 1990s was an amazing decade. I, I was in my 20s, uh, 20s and 30s, and I felt like, oh my God, this is Shangri-La. This is, I never believed, I never expected life would be so good. You know, the U.S. even ran a budget surplus, which it had not done in you know, many decades. <laughs> So Declining it was a golden age. From what could you hope for? <clears throat> oh yeah, we should hire some of you Australians to run our country. Oh my God, it just <laughs> came out today. We're going to have a trillion dollar surplus. I'm mean, sorry, a trillion dollar deficit yeah. at a time of you know low unemployment and a booming economy. It's insane what we are doing to ourselves in this country. All right, back to our other terrible story. Um, so in the 1990s, for some reason, we freaked out about child abduction, uh, and we stopped letting our kids out. There were some stories of child abduction. Uh, we have 350 million people in our country and about 100 to 120 a year um, kids are truly kidnapped. Uh, it almost never happens. It's almost always the non-custodial parent if a kid is missing, but it happens a few times uh, that a kid is kidnapped. But the news media covers it so much that we, for a lot of reasons, we just freaked out in the 90s and said, no more, you're not going out. If you, are, if you go out, you might be abducted. Uh, and then by the early 2000s, no American had seen a child um, out on its own in a park or on the street um, in so long that it began to seem very strange uh, that if, you know, if one was caught playing in a park, the parents could be arrested um, or at least sent to Child Protective Services for neglect. So we changed our ideas about childhood and we thought the world's dangerous, kids have to be protected. So these same kids born in the mid-90s who didn't get normal childhood exposure, um, they get social media when they're still in middle school. This, I think, is why there's the sharp dividing line. The millennials didn't get social media until they were in, in university, and it, there's no sign that it damaged them. But if you're born in 1996, Gen Z, you were able to get it. Uh, you know, you're 10 when Facebook opens up to the world in, in 2006, and then fa uh, social media gets much more toxic between 2009, 2011. It gets much more common and much more toxic. So that's when I think it starts really changing kids. <clears throat> And in terms of uh, parent, parents' concerns, uh, you have a lovely statistic about the length of time that you would need to leave your child unaccompanied uh, <laughs> yes. in the car before uh, he or she would be abducted by a stranger. Uh, how long is that? Yeah, some, somebody, I forget who, calculated. If you look at the fact there's only about 100 abductions a year, uh, they figured how long would you have to leave your child? If you just park your car in a parking lot and you leave your child unaccompanied, how long would you have to leave them before they've got a likelihood of being abducted? And the answer is 700,000 years. Um, so, you know, it, it, of course, it depends on the neighborhood. In some neighborhoods, it would be quicker. Uh, but the point is, we worry about things we shouldn't worry about, and we don't worry about things that we should worry about. So, in fact, the world is physically very safe. We should be sending our kids out to get physical experience in the physical world is quite safe. Uh, whereas it turns out that the online world is not so safe. And we said to our kids, you know what? I'm busy. Go ahead. Here's an iPad. Uh, and, you know, six hours later, the kid puts the iPad down. Um, now, the data doesn't show that watching videos is bad. So I'm not, I don't want to say that electronic device use is necessarily bad. The data is more complicated on that. But on social media, the studies do clearly show social media is, almost always emerges as much worse than, than just device time or watching videos. Yeah, and I love the idea of anti-fragility applied to uh, to parenting. Uh, I mean, I think about the uh, concerns that people sometimes have when they see uh, a runner in a major uh, event having a heart attack uh, and forget that far more people die of heart attacks because they didn't go for a run than die of heart attacks right. because they did go for a run. Yeah, uh, no, that's right. You also, yeah, that 
You also speak about the uh, the, the cha- change in uh, research around uh, nut allergies. Uh, say a little bit about uh, about that, because I think there's a there's a lovely metaphor there. Yes. So um, in the United States, at least, we all took peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to school when we were kids. Uh, but that began to change in the 1990s because some kids do have a peanut allergy. Uh, it was on the order of I forget the exact number, but it was um, it was on the order of one out of every several hundred kids used to have a peanut allergy in the 1990s. And then a, a study that used the exact same methods done by the same people uh, around maybe 2010 or so found that the rate had tripled uh, and that it was going up in many other countries, but only in countries that tell pregnant women to avoid peanuts. And so the um, uh, as epidemiologists and allergists uh, looked at this, they thought, wow, maybe it's the deprivation of peanuts that's actually causing the allergy. They did a very direct experiment, recruited about 600 uh, women who'd recently given birth and and whose kids were at risk of a peanut, allerg- uh, peanut allergy because they had other immune issues. Uh, um, and half of them, they told the standard advice, which is don't go near peanuts, don't you eat peanuts while you're lactating, don't give your kid anything with peanuts. And half they gave a, a, a bags of an Israeli snack food called bamba, which is a puffed corn uh, thing with peanut dust on it, like a bit of a peanut mm. butter flavor. And they said, here, give some of this to your kid two or three times a week. And they monitored the kids. They didn't just say, go home and tell us if the kid survives. Um, they monitored them. And then at age five, they tested them all thoroughly. And what they found is that those who followed standard advice, 17% had a peanut allergy. So for the rest of their lives, they're going to have to really worry when they eat food, when they go to a restaurant, carry an EpiPen with them. Um, but for the group that was exposed to peanut dust, 3%. Only 3% had a peanut allergy. So once you understand that the immune system is anti-fragile, the immune system is a complex system that requires shocks. That's what a vaccine is. It requires triggers in order to cause it to develop antibodies. Then you realize if you deprive your kid of the, of the antigens, the kid doesn't learn how to make antibodies. And so this is what we opened the book with. I think it's a great example. It really, you know, everybody understands that aspect of the immune system. You need vaccines. And then think about raising your kids in an environment. You know, my kids go to New York City public schools. No teasing is allowed. No exclusion is allowed. Um, This is terrible. I mean, it seems humane. It seems like, oh, you know, let's make them be nice to each other. But if you imagine a kid making it to the age of 18 with hardly any teasing or exclusion, now, of course, on social media, it's different. They can't avoid it there. But they don't develop the, the normal skills in physical and real social life. So when they are teased or excluded, it's much more painful than it would have been for previous generations. In, in, in a similar vein to the peanut study, uh, you advocate uh, better playgrounds, uh, avoiding the uh, what you call safetyism and, uh, and encouraging kids to do somewhat risky activities. Uh, what do you think a kind of ideal playground looks like and, and how what, 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 what's some of the, uh, the cutting edge work being done on this? Yeah, there's this whole really fascinating field of play studies. This was the most fun chapter to write. Uh, I think it was chapter nine <clears throat> of the book. I did a lot of research into play. Uh, and there's, there's a number of great researchers who study animals and look, all mammals play. And so if you think about it, like why would a baby, you know, baby elk or baby squirrel or baby tiger, any baby, anything, why would it go run around and play? You're exposing yourself to predation. And the answer is that the mammal brain is this big thing that requires a lot of experience and play wires up the brain for the adult skills. 
The whole point of having a secure base, the whole point of attachment theory, is your parents provide a secure base that you can run back to if something goes wrong, but the point of that secure base is that you can venture off a little further each time or each year, uh, practice the skills you need, take risks, take bigger risks, take bigger risks. Um, so that's the mammal developmental plan. And when you watch kids, you know, when they learn to skateboard, they don't just you know, go down a, a shallow hill, now they go for a steep hill, and then they go down staircases. The kids are trying to dose themselves with risk. Uh, our brains need this, our brains need to wire up, so kids seek out the right level of risk. Uh, when I was growing up, I, I see that you're uh, about, uh, I guess you're about my wife's age. I'm, I'm 55, my wife is 48. Um, uh, yep. you know, when we were kids, our playgrounds were such that we had seesaws, and on a seesaw, you can get hurt because if the other kid jumps off, you go down and you, you know, smack your butt on the ground. So you have to be careful and you have to figure out how to trust each other. No playground I see in America has a seesaw anymore because kids could get hurt, which means that they don't ever have an opportunity to learn how to not get hurt. A good playground requires small risk. You don't want anything where the kids will die or break their neck, but you do want a playground where they can get a little bit hurt. In Britain, they're way ahead of us. In Britain, they have started to add risk. They have started to put construction materials, bricks, wood, things like that. Kids love it. And yeah, they're, you know, they're, they might bang their finger, but then they learn to not bang their finger. You've also uh, spoken about the importance of allowing your child to go out unsupervised, although you have a lovely tale about the fact that uh, with your daughter in, in New York, she needs to go with a special uh, licence, a special letter from you uh, yeah, telling, uh, telling yeah. anyone she meets that, uh, that she has uh, your permission to be out in the street. No, that's right. I, so um, when I start, so I'm uh, friends with a woman named Lenore Skenazy who wrote a book called Free Range Kids. Uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. She's a journalist. And uh, when her son was nine, back around 2009, I think it was, she let her son ride the New York City subway home alone. And New York was quite safe by then, but people still had the idea that if you let your kid ride the subway, that's child abuse. You're, you're asking for your kid to be abducted. Uh, so she, she let him because he really wanted to. He knew the subway system. Um, and he did it, and he got home, and he was exultant. He was thrilled, and he wanted to do it again. Well, this is normal development. This is how you cultivate skills. But the fact that so many people freaked out and called her America's worst mom, at least when she was interviewed on TV, because there was a big uproar, that's what some news stations labeled her, America's worst mom. Um, and so she started, uh, she wrote a book called Free Range Kids, and then she founded an organization called Let Grow. Uh, so if listeners go to letgrow.org, I'm on the board of it. Uh, it. It has all kinds of research and advice on how to, how to raise stronger, healthier kids. Anyway, um, when I got to know her and I realized how important it is for me to let my kids out, beginning with my son, who's now 13, um, I would send him to the supermarket, literally across the street from my apartment building. But I was worried that he could be stopped and then I could get in trouble and he could get in trouble. So I wrote up a little kind of a jokey license that said, uh, you know, to whom it may concern, um, if you think it's inappropriate. My par I have my parents' permission to, to uh, do errands in the neighborhood. We think it's healthy for me to, to have some independence. If you think uh, that it is improper or unhealthy, please, number one, ask yourself whether you uh, were allowed out when you were my age. Two, read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Three, call my parents and they will tell you about New York state law, which allows parents considerable leeway, etc. So it's kind of a joke, but the point is that um, we have a nation of busybodies who think that a 10-year-old kid should not be walking on the street without a parent. 
you also have a range of, of other really interesting tips uh, around uh, allowing your child to uh, to attend overnight camp, uh, riding, uh, riding a bike around the neighbourhood, seeking out other kids who will, uh, will want to explore, uh, but also a, a series of suggestions for uh, parents encouraging children to debate different ideas. Um, uh, I wonder if you might say a little, little, little bit more about, uh, about this and, and about what good argumentation within a household looks like. Yes, so there are so many skills that kids need to learn. Um, and they don't learn them by lecture, they learn them by, by practice. And uh, one of the things that we noticed, that Greg noticed in beginning 2014-2015, is that many students began interpreting intellectual life not through a lens of like what's right and wrong or true or false, but what's safe or dangerous. And if, if a student says something in class and someone challenges them or says, no, I disagree or I think you're wrong, they would increasingly take that as an attack. You're attacking me. And you can't do university life like that. You can't have a university if disagreement is considered attack. Uh, and so uh, we think it's important that uh, students learn well before they come to university how to disagree well, uh, skills of, of argument and, and debate, but even more importantly, just skills of getting along with others without just suppressing what you believe. And so, um, so we have some we have some resources on the site. If if your listeners go to thecoddling.com, um, also me and some of my colleagues created a program called Open Mind. If you go to openmindplatform.org, it walks you through why it's so hard to have arguments, why we uh, we suffer from confirmation bias, how you can start a discussion on the right foot. So there's all kinds of advice out there. There's all kinds of, of research and common sense about about how to do it. Um, while I'm talking about the site, I hope I can guide your listeners to the page on Australia. So if listeners go to thecoddling.com and then uh, on the tab, the book, there's a page called International Coddling where I've assembled Google documents with all the literature I can find on the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Uh, that's all I have so far. Uh, but if you click on the Australian page, I got to tell you, I was expecting you guys to be a lot tougher than Americans. I was expecting you guys to still be letting your kids out and, and you know, you play rugby and and I was not expecting- We're all crocodile Dundee down here. You're what? We're all crocodile Dundee down here. Well, I guess I did have that stereotype. And, and you know, maybe it'll humiliate you to say that the, uh, the New Zealanders still have it a lot more than you do now. So I'm, I'm saying that to try to stimulate a little competition and rivalry for you to get it back. Um, <laughs> but, I'm, but I was surprised to find when I asked um, in the several talks I gave at, at universities and elsewhere, um, all of the older Australians said that they were let out around age seven or eight, but uh, the, the teenagers uh, are not let out until mostly 10 to 12, as in the United States. I mean, there's some, who, especially in the rural areas, but uh, some are still out at eight, but most most are being overprotected. And so you can see that. You can see in the Google Doc here, at least journalism on the rise of overprotection, you can see graphs showing rises of mental illness, especially depression by gender. Uh, it looks like you have a rising suicide rate, although it's not nearly as sharp as it is in the US. So anyway, yeah, you're suffering from all the things we're suffering from, although in most cases, not quite as bad. Just before we f finish the, the issue on debates, one of my favourite uh, lines from your book about uh, how to uh, uh, debate well is uh, to argue as if you're right, but to listen as if you're wrong. I thought that was a beautiful encapsulation of what it is to be an effective uh, uh, debater and, and a good protagonist. 
Um, you've also talked can, about. Oh, can, cognitive... I, oh, can I just can I just add something to that? Um, so something I've begun to see, as um, as a lot of things we're doing are making young people weaker, and I would also say um, dumber, or rather, if you deprive them of debate and dissent, if if you if you don't have them in a culture of debate and argument, they don't sharpen their skills, they don't hone uh, their their abilities. So it's really important for young people to seek out experiences that make them tougher and smarter. And one of the best ways I've found um, to get smarter is to ask people to show you where you're wrong. So if you have an idea, put it out there and ask people, where is this wrong? Um, you know, Twitter has all kinds of problems. It, it's destroying democracy, in my opinion. But it's a pretty good way to put an idea out there. And then you, you read the comments and, you, and people quickly point out where you're wrong. So if you have an attitude of, I don't want to be attacked, I don't want to be humiliated, you know, you're not going to put anything out there and you're not going to get smarter. But if you realize we are all so limited, it's really hard to find the truth. We're really biased to protecting our current beliefs, not learning the truth. So if you, if you start from that, that position and you realize you can't get smart on your own, you need people who don't share your confirmation biases to critique you. You need people to disprove or challenge your beliefs so that you can either abandon those that are bad um, or find better evidence uh, to support those that are good. Now here, I'm basically just channeling John Stuart Mill. He said all of this in 1859 in On Liberty, uh, which is still one of the best books ever in the, in the liberal tradition. And you've done this uh, beautiful uh, illustrated edition of uh, his chapter two, uh, this All Minus One, uh, co-edited with Richard Reeves and, and stunningly illustrated uh, by uh, uh, Dave Cigarelli. Um, that's one of the uh, the resources that uh, is out there for anyone to uh, to down download, and I'd strongly recommend it to uh, to listeners. Yes, if, if if listeners go to heterodoxacademy.org/mill. Uh, they'll find a free edition of it as well as a, they can buy a, a printed edition, but the PDF is free for the world. You talk too about the benefits of cognitive behavioural therapy, which uh, goes back to uh, the, the Stoics, uh, and uh, some of the sort of useful tips for, uh, for kids using cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, one of them I really liked was, uh, was to suggest to kids that when you have negative thoughts, put them in a Daffy Duck voice to, uh, to, to make <laughs> yes. them seem less, less, less serious. What is the, the kind of guts of cognitive behavioural therapy and, and why is it really useful uh, for iGen uh, at this particular moment? So yeah, the guts of cognitive behavioural therapy is basically the insights of Buddha and Marcus Aurelius um, and uh, the, you know, basically the Stoics. And here, actually, I have the, so uh, I've started reading Marcus Aurelius every morning. His meditations are just brilliant. Yes. Um, so I have, so actually on the coddling.com, I have a page, two pages of quotes from Marcus Aurelius where he basically tells you the opposite of the great untruths. I mean, he really, you know, the wisdom is extraordinary. So, um, okay, so here's, here's number one, uh, the untruth of fragility. So here's what Marcus Aurelius says. Uh, just as nature takes every obstacle... Oh, no, I'm sorry, no, we're not doing that. We're doing number two. We're doing emotional reasoning. So Marcus Aurelius says, um, uh, choose not to be harmed, and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed, and you haven't been. It's the basic point that Buddha made also, that our life is the creation of our minds, that objective factors don't influence us directly. I mean, physical things do, but most of them is, are social, and they only influence us through our filters. Here's another one. Uh, you don't have to turn this into something. 
It doesn't have to upset you. Things can't shape our decisions by themselves. So this is ancient wisdom. And uh, in the 1960s, Aaron Beck, a psychiatrist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, discovered that when he challenged the, the distorted thoughts of his depressed patients, um, and he taught them to challenge their own distorted thoughts, they got better. Now, Freudian doctrine at the time said, don't bother, the cause of the depression has something to do with their sexuality at the age of three and yada yada. Uh, but Beck found that, uh, that people think themselves into a hole. And if you teach them to challenge their distorted beliefs, and to look for evidence for them, um, you can actually break the cycle and they feel released from their sadness or their anxiety. And so that's the basis of cognitive therapy, help people to recognize. And we can all, you know, everybody listening to this can probably think of a time when they catastrophized something little happened, but they made a big deal out of it. Or they did mind reading. Something happened, they said, oh my God, she's gonna hate me, she's gonna think I'm an idiot. When in fact, you find out later, like, no, she didn't notice, or no, she thought it was charming. So, um, so cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is a way of tuning up your thinking. And why we're so excited about it, not just because it saved Greg's life. Uh, he had a suicidal depression in, in 2007, learned CBT. Um, uh, it's that it's not just for people who are depressed. It basically is critical reasoning skills. And in universities, um, what we want is we want students to come out much better reasoners than when they came in, much better at making claims based on evidence and then backing up their claims with evidence and then changing their minds if the evidence changes. Uh, and this is something that's very hard for people. It's not natural to do this. So CBT basically makes you a better thinker. You also uh, speak about the, the role of social media and point out the number of uh, tech titans in Silicon Valley don't let their children use devices. Uh, what, what are some tips for parents in managing uh, social media and, and device use, which, as best I can tell, has become the number one topic of conversation among uh, oh my parents God, yes. of, 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 of young adolescents? No, that's right. It seems, at least in the United States, it seems there are only two conversations. One is social media and kids. The other is Donald Trump. We don't talk about anything else. We don't even talk about the weather anymore. It's just those two. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, and we're all wrestling with this. My kids are nine and 13. Uh, and for years, we wrestled with it. Like, try, like, oh, you've been on it for, how long have you been on that? Wow. How many episodes did you, well, time to put that away. And, and no, don't do that. Um, so first realize that um, that device time is not necessarily bad, but it, it will expand to push out everything else. And so you definitely don't want your kids on their devices six or eight hours a day. They're not gonna do anything else. So three simple pieces of advice. One, all screens out of the bedroom by a fixed time every day. Everybody just knows at nine o'clock, you put your laptop, your iPad, whatever it is, you put it on the kitchen counter or in a kitchen drawer or in a box or something. There is no reason why you should uh, leave an iPhone or iPad in the kid's bedroom because some kids will be checking. They'll be checking their social media. They'll be checking texts uh, instead of sleeping. So don't do that. Uh, number two, no social media. Uh, well, I think until 16, but that's unrealistic as long as everyone's on it at age 11. Uh, but definitely no social media until 13. Um, most parents let their kids lie and create uh, an Instagram account when they're 10 or 11. And while the jury is not entirely decided, there is some contradictory evidence. But um, on the website, on thecoddling.com, we've collected all the evidence. It sure looks like social media is contributing to the rising depression anxiety, especially for girls. 
the correlational studies are very consistent and the experimental studies are, are unanimous, all five show a causal effect. The time lag studies are mixed. There are some time lag studies pointing both ways. So I can't say that everything is, is locked up, but it's generally looking like social media is a major contributor or a contributor to the depression epidemic. Uh, and then the third, uh, the third piece of advice um, is work out a time budget with your kids. So, you know, I'd like to be able to tell you, you know, oh, two hours a day and maybe, you know, less on weekdays, more on weekends. But I can't tell you that. It depends on what your kids are doing. Uh, it depends on what the alternatives are. It depends on a lot of things. It depends on the kid. So, but the one thing I can say for sure is that if you don't have any kind of budget, there are hundreds or thousands of psychologists in Silicon Valley who are working night and day to keep your kid on the device every waking moment. You don't want that. So, <clears throat> So when you talk to kids, what I find is that Gen Z is not in denial. It's not like, no, we want to be on eight hours a day. No, they, they know it's a problem. They know social media is a problem. And so if you work out, you say, well, what do you think the policy should be? And how, what's your plan for sticking to it? And it turns out the Apple controls, if, you, if you're on uh, Apple, um, Apple, I think, is, a, is looking pretty good here. Apple, uh, the parental controls that came out last year are really good. They really work. So I urge everyone to start using those. Work it out a budget with your kid and then set it on the phone and then that's it. That solves the problem. We've spoken a lot about uh, raising, raising kids and uh, for me as the father of uh, six, 10 and 12 year old boys, it's, uh, it's, it's obviously something I'm uh, very in enthusiastic about learning more about. Uh, but the book had its genesis in, uh, in what was going on in, in universities. So I wonder if uh, as, as we draw the conversation to a close, you might say something about uh, uh, what's gone on in, in universities uh, and, uh, and what you think makes a, a wise university and how we might make our higher education institutions wiser. Sure. Uh, first, let me just say that listeners should go to andrewlee.com slash Andrew to look at the photos <laughs> of your family and this, the, your youngest son sitting there with that, that expression, that sulky expression on his face is just priceless. I love that photo of your family. Um, uh, but in terms of a wiser university, uh, so um, I think the, the Greek concept of telos, or telos is very helpful. You know, Aristotle interpreted things in terms of their telos. The talos of a physician is to heal. The talos of a university is to discover and disseminate knowledge, to find truth. And I think that universities in the United States uh, have really lost their way in that they're giant, complicated institutions working uh, towards many purposes, and they often lose sight of the truth-seeking function. So I think that um, um, when we talk about speech, we are arguing endlessly about speech. And if we do it in the framework of diversity and inclusion, I mean, those are important considerations, but we end up then using having the standard sort of therapeutic political uh, norms that we have in many other parts of our society. And instead, I think what we need to do is, is focus on what's our purpose. Our purpose is discovery of truth. And so we don't need free speech per se. That is, we don't need a, you know, a norm that says anyone can say anything. That's not the point. But we must have norms that say, that people uh, are encouraged to speak up, people are encouraged to disagree when they, um, when they have evidence or arguments against someone else, and that it should be done civilly. So I think a wise university is one that is focused laser-like on, on its telos, and policies all revolve around that. Um, an unwise university is one that is always reactive, Oh my God! Uh, the newspaper covered this this you know this event at a fraternity. Oh my God! We'd better put out a statement. Oh, we'd better limit this, you know, close this down, ban this. 
So uh, people running many organizations in the United States are, are nervous now. It's, it, leadership is getting a lot harder. Um, social media and political polarization are making things much more explosive. Uh, and I think universities are kind of losing their way. Australian universities, I think, are in a very good position. You don't have nearly as much uh, political uh, protest and stuff from your, your students. They mostly don't live on campus. They don't live in a closed community of 18 to 21 year olds. And so, um, uh, and so when I was uh, visiting, I, I gave talks at the University of Melbourne, University of Sydney, uh, met with administrators in both cases. Um, I, I think you're in pretty good shape. You, you, the, our American trends are coming your way, but there was widespread agreement that you don't want uh, you don't want the things that happened in America to come to Australia. And so if you have clear policies, um, uh, if you keep in mind the purpose of the university, I think you'll make it through. Now, there is a report by, uh, uh, what's it, a French, I forget his first name. Um, who wrote uh, Robert French, that's it, thank you. And so it's generally a very good report, but it has a few giant loopholes, uh, reasons why it's okay to shut down speech. Um, if because the university has an obligation or a duty to protect well-being. Uh, well, that's what they say in America, like, oh, we've got to ban this speaker because it'll be traumatizing to some of the students. So I think the French report, um, if it was implemented as written, would have two giant loopholes that would allow anyone to shut down any speaker any time. Uh, but I'm hopeful that those loopholes will be closed. Oh, the other is quality of scholarship. So you just say, oh, that's shoddy scholarship, and then you can shut them down. And you talk in the in the book about the Chicago Statement on Principles of Free Expression, which has been uh, a useful touchstone in the U.S. context. Um, Jonathan, as we draw the conversation to a, to a close, let me uh, ask you a few questions that I ask uh, all of my interview interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? What advice would I give to my teenage self? Um, let's see. It's possible that I would give no advice because I had a really wonderful mother. Um, my mother really knew to let us make our own mistakes, um, to get us the training and skills we needed to be successful in life, to not step in and help us. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, I was born with many advantages, uh, but one of the main ones was that I had such a skillful mother. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I made mistakes and, and I think I was able to make the right ones and, and learn from them. Um, so I don't know. That's a good question. I should have a great answer for you, but, uh, but I don't. What's something you used to believe, but no longer do? I certainly used to believe that religion was stupid and evil. Um, I've been an atheist since about the age of 14. I, I was, had a bar mitzvah at 13 and I wasn't an atheist then, but by 14 or 15, I was an atheist. And by 17 or 18, I hated religion, thought it was stupid. Um, and I was the sort of boy who would have become a new atheist in his 30s when Richard Dawkins and others were writing all those books. Mm. But um, as a result of doing my research on morality and, and human evolution, I've come to see that religion, uh, of course, there are toxic forms of expression and there are positive forms, but that overall, at least in the United States, where we have a competitive market and religions are competing with each other to attract people, um, religions generally increase social capital they help raise children with self-control. They instill moral virtues. So I don't want to give a blanket praise, but my point is I used to be a sort of an angry atheist who hated religion, and now I'm a non-angry atheist who thinks that we need religion or something <laughs> like religion. And when I see the substitutes for religion, um, those are really bad. 
What I mean is in the United States, by far the fastest growing religious category is called spiritual but not religious. There's a vast spiritual emptiness in the United States. I mean, people have said that at least since the 70s, 60s or 70s, but it's really bad for, our, for Gen Z. Um, it's related to their depression and anxiety. And because there's this vast spiritual emptiness, I think a lot of them are attracted to political movements, which they approach in a, in a religious way. So it's great to work against racism and for gun control and for the environment. I you know, I'm certainly support all of those efforts. What I see happening is, is many students approaching it like a religion. And if you have a religion, you have blasphemy laws. No one can dissent, no one can raise objections. And so you get bad policies promoted uh, and you get the sense, many of them seem to think that intimidation is appropriate because they're fighting for a good cause. So in, in a funny way, you know, the formal religions, which have evolved over a long time, are much more benign. And the new religions, the quasi-religions, I think these days are, can be kind of savage. Well, and these new spiritual movements seem to have at their heart uh, spiritual truths, which are pretty close to the three untruths that we started, started the conversation with. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Always trust your feelings. Life's a battle between good people and evil people. Yeah, uh, well, that's we, right. That's right. A lot of them. A lot of them do. And we should be clear here. We're talking about we're talking about movements that tend to flourish more on the on the left in, the, in progressive circles. But my God, I mean, the right. You know, the far right. I mean, if we're looking at illiberalism and social media driving violence. So you know, in much of my writing, I'm criticizing the left in that I'm on a university campus, and that's where the problem is. But you know, in society more broadly, I think the right is the far right is really messed up. Social media is making it worse. Uh, in my own country, certainly at the national level, the Republicans are are just absolutely unbelievable, even to Republicans of 30 years ago. Uh, what they're doing to the country now would be shocking to Ronald Reagan or to Republicans of 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. When are you most happy? When am I most happy? I am most happy um, when I am traveling in a foreign country, sitting in a cafe, reading a newspaper from another city or country, um, with a day of exploration ahead of me. Um, I'm extremely high on the trait of openness to experience. I'm an awe junkie. I love the feeling of awe, climbing mountains, sitting on rooftops, watching sunsets, waterfalls. So I guess um, I'm most happy when I get to satisfy that. Although in, if I vote with my feet, or, or rather if you look at my, what do you economists call it? Your manifested preferences by your behavior, something Revealed like preference. That. Reveal, yeah. My revealed preferences would suggest that I'm most happy when I'm working because I, I do tend to work <laughs> a lot. But you know, but like like a lot of professors, it's it's because it, it, it's I, I love it. I mean, I, I'm just so interested in the things I'm studying, so it doesn't feel like work. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, <clears throat> the most important thing I say I do to stay mentally and physically healthy. I don't I don't do much because my life is unbalanced in a, in a good way. I have a wonderful wife who's very supportive of my work. I have great kids, uh, you know, are not, not problems, they're loving. Um, I have a wonderful job. I love teaching at New York University. I have perfect job security. So in that sense, um, you know, I have a lot going for me in terms of my mental health. I don't have to do a lot. Um, I'm, the theme of the happiness hypothesis was happiness comes from between. If you get the right relationship between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself, 
then you will live at the at the upper end of your range of potential happiness. And I didn't have that early in my career. I didn't have it when I was an assistant professor at the University of Virginia. And then I met my wife, got tenure, had kids, all that, you know, all happened all at once. Um, so I don't have to do much now. I can pretty much work all the time except for when I'm with my family. But what I have started doing, as I said, I started reading Marcus Aurelius in the morning uh, because the summer that Donald Trump was threatening nuclear war with North Korea, um, we didn't know what the hell was happening in our country. This was the first six months of the Trump administration. And the trajectory was such that it was quite possible to believe that the country was going to implode or get into a nuclear war within a few months. And uh, I was quite anxious. And uh, I found that reading Marcus Aurelius really helped because, my God, um, Marcus Aurelius, emperor of Rome in a time of military conquest and challenges, uh, you know, he, um, they'd see, he'd seen it all back then. He, he'd seen it all and he gives advice for how uh, how to live. Okay, so maybe, here, why don't we, here we are. I have a, um, let's see if I can find a, a quote from his, from him. Um, here, uh, to watch the courses of the stars as if you revolved with them, to keep constantly in mind how the elements alter into one another. Thoughts like this wash off the mud of life below. Um, he, he's a constant good. reminder good. Uh, to, you know, step out of the pettiness of everyday life reconnect with the universe, the vastness of time and space. And he, do, he talks over and over again about how we'll all be dead, about how all the great men of the past are now dead. We have only this brief moment of, between an infinite past and an infinite future. So it really keeps you grounded and centered uh, and it, keeps, it, it gives you perspective. So I'd say reading Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, uh, the Gregory Hayes translation is the best one I've found. Um, that really helps my mental health. And finally, Jonathan, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Of living an which person? Um, I mean, the trite answer is, is to say my mother, or my mother and my father. Um, I certainly, uh, they were both great role models. Um, my father was extremely honest. My mother would praise his honesty in front of me and my sisters. I think that was a very powerful combination. Um, so my parents certainly did. Um, and then I think just being inducted into the academy, having advisors who loved ideas and really modeled intellectual integrity. Uh, you know, you're never taught, don't make up data, don't say anything untrue. You're not taught that formally. But from the way people behave, you can tell what they hold sacred. And so I had just great advisors in graduate school at Penn, uh, and my postdoc at the University of Chicago with Richard Schwader. So um, while they weren't teaching me ethics per se, they were teaching me how to be a good professor, uh, a good researcher. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, moral psychologist, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Oh, well, thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll like past interviews with Martha Nussbaum, Joshua Gans, Dylan Moran, and Dalton Conley. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.